I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to another episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's ongoing James Bond podcast. Uh, my name is Jack Eason. I'm joined by Jake Tropila. How are you doing, Jake? Hey, I'm doing fine, Jack. And let me just say it's uh, it's great to be back. We've been away from this for a while now, but uh, hopefully we're we not have. too rusty. It, ho- hopefully not. Hopefully everything goes off. I believe in, in the interim, you have gone to the uh, world's largest James Bond theme park, a.k.a. England. That's so, right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and you caught some James Bond affiliated stuff there. Indeed. Yeah. So I went to uh, London over a week ago uh, for my honeymoon with my wife. Um, I went to... Congratulations. Made an honest man of Jake. Thank you very much. Um, no German nurses with, with running uh, cars behind you uh, went well. No, no. No, no assassination attempts, none, none of that sort. So I went to, uh, so we stayed in Trafalgar Square, and I went to um, first we went to the uh, the Bond in Motion uh, Museum, which uh, had a lot of cool gadgets on display. But mostly it was a showcase for all of the vehicles of Bond. Uh, they pretty much nice. had had one vehicle per film, um, and there was a TV screen behind each one that dedicated the sequence in which the film or the vehicle was used. So like they had the. Uh, the car for the corkscrew dr- jump in um, the man with the golden gun, and they had uh, they even had the I'm totally blanking on the uh, the name of it the little um, aqua pod or the sub pod that uh, Blofeld tries to escape in in uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Um, they had of course the Aston Martin DB5, the classic car. They had pretty much everything, and it was a a lot of fun. Uh, and then a few days later, I actually got to attend a screening of The Spy Who Loved Me, which marked my first time of seeing any movie in the UK. And it was followed up by a Q&A with uh, Carolyn Monroe, who played uh, the Bond girl Naomi in the film. She was the helicopter pilot, and she was an absolute delight to listen to and to speak with afterwards. So, uh, yeah, it was a wonderful time. I really loved England. Uh, I would definitely go back, and I highly recommend it. That's, that's pretty good. I, in the meantime, went nowhere. No, so. that's, that's fair. <laughs> Somebody has to hold down but, the fort here. That's exactly it. Well, that's really cool. Okay, so we, yeah, we, we've been we've been up to a few things. We got to get back to grindstone, and we are going to start back in with Octopussy, which is <laughs> that's right, uh, a film that exists that has the name Octopussy. Somehow, a group of adults in a room named to film this, and we are dealing with the consequences all these years later. They, um, they named it, with- they shot it, they filmed it, it is out on video. <laughs> and we are going to <laughs> and, talk about it. And why not? Yeah. Uh, yes, this is Roger Moore back again in 1983, uh, returning to the role as 56-year-old Roger Moore. Um, Damn. Yeah, uh, but we, we have also, I guess, uh, I have to mention, we, we have reached... Uh, I mentioned when we started off this this podcast series that James Bond was really a strong childhood memory for me. I remember watching quite a lot of them when I was very young. 
And uh, we really octopussy. And as soon as octopussy started up, I was like right back in childhood. This is like we've hit the the peak era. The next four films really yeah. are kind of the 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 films, the Bond films that were on TV when I was a kid. So it was really weird because I haven't watched this film in. God, it must be at least 20 years. So it's kind of weird to watch a movie where everything is immediately incredibly familiar and also I kind of don't remember exactly what's going to happen next. It's a very, very strange, surreal experience. So, um, yeah, because kids are allowed to watch movies called Octopussy, apparently. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and it starts off in, in grand Bond fashion. I was uh, I, I messaged you in the middle of it because as soon as that horse box pulls up <laughs> i was like there's a plane in that horse box i remember this this That's is right. one of the coolest things ever and they did total genuine horse's ass prop really sets the tone for this film as if the title wasn't going to anyway and um, that james bond uh infiltrates some fidel castro type thing i'm not really sure so yeah, latin american affair cuba on a or cuba adjacent <laughs> Cuba adjacent I think definitely is what they're going for um, and is after some kind of tracking device but a, 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 la- a lovely lady assists him by plastering on his, his fake mustache and giving him warnings he's doubling as another as another soldier yeah. and he, he sneaks in and he unsuccessfully tries to I can't destroy or capture some kind of device we're never quite sure what's happening there's so much going on in this early sequence one thing one of my favorite details is at this like secret army base is that there's just a missile outside on like a little stand and it just rotates around as if it's like like in real time tracking some kind of object we don't I, know about <laughs> yeah i noticed that too and i was i was really kind of admiring a lot of the production design to both the base and the outsiding outside military because like everyone's in a costume and there's all this like what seems to be working machinery and i'm wondering how much of this was shot on location in a real base and how much was all just great set design because it does look very nice it is it's it's definitely sets the tone we're we're in you know like spare no expense james bondville yeah um and yeah and so so bond goes in and he he gets captured he gets rumbled he's driven away in a truck his sexy lady friend who i don't think even gets a name she's not she she does not appear post credits no uh, bail helps bail him out and then absolutely his horse box has a jet engine plane in it like a little tiny jet plane with fold-up wings which is like the coolest thing imaginable yeah uh, and he he flies away and he manages to and it, uh, a thing about this podcast here is for if anyone if you're not familiar we keep a running bond kill count we keep track of how many people bond murders senselessly throughout his reign of terror over the world um this is the first time I think that in the pre-credit sequence I can't even keep up because he literally blows up an entire airplane <laughs> hangar full of people. Yeah, I don't know. This this might be the that might be the one moment in the entire series where the most amount of people are killed by Bond's hand, which is kind of crazy too because this is Roger Moore's Bond and he's always known as the the jovial and the playful of all the Bonds. Yet he might single-handedly have the highest kill count just from this pre-title sequence alone. Yeah, I mean, I, there were some big explode like Doctor No's base exploding. You know, like there's there's a few you know big moon like big base explosions throughout yeah. the Bond series. We haven't had one in a while though, and then this one is. 
yeah, just full airplane. There's scores of people in there. I'm, I'm not even going to try and count it, but they are yeah. all blown the hell up. And Bond flies off to the as as our as our theme tune kicks in, our jovial theme tune that does not feature the word octopusy. Oh, here it is. Point. So it's a uh, it's a very slow love ballad in the realm of Bond songs. Uh, kind of. It seems like it's it's really kicking in with all I wanted was a distraction for an hour or two, and it's like yeah. oh a James Bond movie. I see. Yeah. Um, this is another film or another song actually that has this is uh, probably weirdly this is the James Bond movie that our theme tune that I think of immediately because i swear when my parents first bought a cd player yeah uh, which i don't recall when that was probably about seven years after everyone else purchased a cd player (laughs) and i don't even know if they paid for it or if it came with the player but they got one of these you know there's like cheap cds that have like just music that no one ever possibly would consider listening to and in this case it was a cd of like the 20 great movie themes but instrumentals no lyrics ah, nothing they and weren't they, had, uh, they weren't big rita coolidge fans they just were looking for a soundtrack i i think i feel it must have come free because i don't think my parents would even give a crap about any of this unless it was just like a, a a dollar next to the machine i don't know yeah but it had it had all time high but no lyrics none of tim rice's participation is available on this version and like the rocky theme with no lyrics and a couple of other things just you know one of those garbage bargain basement cds but for some but i listened to it quite a while because it was the only cd we had pretty much at the time so you know because children just have that kind of free time so all time high as not octopussy uh, is very much the a a theme tune i i identify with strongly so you know, from jet airplane horse box to this, I was really, I was really all set to really dig Octopussy. Octopussy was gonna be my my all time high. Yeah. Uh, you know, but unfortunately, maybe it doesn't doesn't quite hold up through as as we progress. But we'll we'll get to that. We'll we'll yeah. we'll work with it. We have another great Morris Binder uh, production sequence with a lot of weird imagery. The women are visible, which is unusual. They're not just silhouettes. Oh yeah, that that stuck out to me too. Was how clear you could see their faces. Um, and uh, I got like a a real like a real fuzzy feeling inside as I was watching this uh, warm title se- this title sequence, and not just because of the song, which I should say it's I think it's a fine song, but it's not. It's far from one of my favorite ones. Sure. Um, yeah. But uh, but just watching like the analog production effects of the title sequence, I was just like, I felt like I was in a nice, familiar place. This is why I keep returning to these movies because it's they don't make them like they used to, and just seeing like the the you know silhouettes of uh, ice skaters and and like the laser 007 images printed on the flesh of nude visible women uh, it, there's, yeah. there's a lot of weird stuff going on in this title sequence it's, even by yeah. james bond standards yeah yeah bond appears and then uh like six arms wrap around him like the which match the poster of the film where he has there's a you know there's eight arms octopusy but um yeah, this is a. I would say this is a film that. Um, just going into my history with it for a bit, this is like one of my early memories of Bond too. Was seeing clips from this film. Like I think my dad was uh, 
flipping through channels on the television set and uh he put on this and he says oh check it out it's a james bond film and i distinctly remember like one of my early memories of bond is seeing him dissolve those bars with an acid pen and thinking that oh this is the coolest thing ever i want to i want to see more of this and so and spike tv was like notorious for playing this film all the time like i think between this and moonraker i've seen those two the most just on tv reruns and and uh, so I think as far as like nostalgia goes, a lot of people really hold this in high esteem. Uh, watching it again, I didn't really have that. Uh, can't really share those feelings, which we'll get into. Um, but I still enjoy it overall. Um, but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I definitely think uh, yeah, I definitely think like as much as we could discuss the the merits as a, a single, and I guess maybe this goes for a lot of James Bond or franchise movies generally. You could get into the nuts and bolts of their how successful they are as self-contained films mm-hmm. but definitely octopussy and moonraker and james bond films in general and really i think that the roger moore era james bond films in particular they are very easy to just kind of duck in and out of if oh, they're yeah. on tv because the plots on them and you know they're none of them are particularly tightly plotted Th- um, this plot in particular is yeah. <laughs> borderline incomprehensible and it <laughs> also is forcing you to follow two MacGuffins in the form of a fake and a real Fabergé egg yes uh, which is which amounts to no consequence whatsoever really no. of which is real or fake yes uh, and yeah and it really just sets up that these films are a series of set pieces I, it's kind of the same feeling I had with the man with the golden gun which really has a very lax plot, I feel. But, you know, it's it's a series of events and you can kind of watch one of them if you feel like it and then leave again. Or, you know, you duck in and you're like, oh, I'm just going to hang around until we get to X part of the movie. You know, they, they do work very well on that front. But I, mm-hmm. I may be sitting down for the whole thing. There's just come a point where you're like, what, why are we why are we doing this? Um, you know, but, but anyway, I suppose to return back to the film and the Fabergé egg, which is, I guess, our, our immediate entry where we meet uh, a clown running yeah. for his life, which is another, um, honestly, a childhood memory. I have this imprinted in my brain. It's the image of a dead clown uh, rolling down a river, which is a weird thing to think of, but I've never been scared of clowns. And maybe that was because James Bond inoculated me by letting him know that they, they can die too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. That's, that's right, kids. Clowns can die too, so don't be scared. Just, just get a knife in them. They'll go down just like the rest. So, I, uh, um, I I thought this was actually I because I always considered this one of the silly f- films and not just because of the clowns, but I thought this was actually kind of a maybe even a harrowing opening sequence. It's like it's very silent. It's it's kind of reminded me of Corinne running from the Dobermans in uh, Moonraker. Um, hmm. It makes a great use of a woodsy location. Just this this haunting image of a clown running away from two knife wielding assassins. I I found it very effective. It is. It's it's a pretty strong sequence, and certainly, you know, you speak from childhood imprint. I mean, it's it's got strong imagery. It, it's a clown in full, you know, giant oversized shoes and full face makeup, running for his life, and, and which a, is and a bo- single balloon strapped to his wrist with a single balloon. Yeah, and he gets detected at one point because one of the balloons bursts. Yeah, and it's like maybe you should have got rid of the balloons. Oh before, yeah, get those out immediately. Any, but but uh, you know so cool. he, but we find out this this clown who was assassinated is uh, 009. He's mm-hmm. one of of James erstwhile colleagues. Presumably they're on good speaking terms. We imagine all the double O's get on very well with each other as they discuss who they killed that afternoon. 
uh, and he is running away with a Fabergé egg, which uh, turns out I honestly it's it's fake or re- it's so fake. I, believe. I I kept track of it. So this one, the first egg is fake. Um, this is confirmed. Thank you for keeping track of the details. Yeah. Check. I have I have a, I have a chart of the eggs, if you can believe it or not. Um, so yeah, this is the first egg. It's a fake egg recovered by 009, who for some reason is in a clown disguise. He ha- also happens upon the British ambassador's house, and uh, the egg is recovered. As you back. do after you you roll down a river for a while, and you get out at the British ambassador's house with a knife still in your back. Yeah, so they discover the egg is a fake. It's brought to the attention of uh, Bond. He's put on the case. He's essentially 009's replacement. Should have mentioned this is also one of the few times in a series where we encounter another 00, even though it's a wordless uh, role. It's still kind of neat to see other agents in the field. Um, and the real egg that is this one is modeled after is actually going up for auction the following day. So uh, Bond is tasked to view the auction of the egg um, at, I don't have the name of the location, something, something, something. Oh, so- yeah. Sotheby's. Sotheby's, yes. Yeah. Sotheby's, yeah. And, the, the and it's worth, is, uh, worth mentioning here for, for in, in terms of just to keep track of the lore, we also have in this scene the first, the new M, the next M. That's right. Uh, Bernard Lee, of course, was not in for Your Eyes Only previously. He died, unfortunately, of cancer before he could shoot scenes for that film, and they didn't replace him. They didn't have either out of time or respect. They, they kind of had a... Uh, an endless scene they had the minister of defense showed up as kind of a proxy yeah. but we have robert brown takes over the role and i believe keeps it until uh license to kill i think he plays it through too so he's, he's right. going to be our m for the next while now and he does a fine job of being an elderly british man in a seat that's exactly right now here's the thing about robert brown is that he actually appears in the spy who loved me as a character named admiral hargraves and ah. many people seem to think, myself included, fans of the series, they would assume that uh, he is basically the successor to Bernard Lee's M, who has uh, taken leave for unknown circumstances. So I like to think that uh, this is a promotion this guy received from Admiral to the uh, the commanding officer for James Bond. So um, it t- it's the same. It's the same concept, the same character as M, even if it's not the exact same man. Um, so yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a one way to look at it. So it's kind of interesting that they had him in place in the first place. Definitely makes sense, and I feel like for the head of the uh, secret intelligence agency, they probably have to promote from within. You probably can't put out a, a you know a right. job posting and bring in external applicants. So it makes sense they'd take an admiral and just bump him up the ladder. But anyhow, we, we, we go to Sotheby's uh, where there is an auction on for this Fabergé egg. James Bond, of course, goes with uh, Flanner, Fanning uh, is the name of the auction. Ex- uh, the, the, mm-hmm. I think he's an auction expert ex- or an auction expert or a an auctioneer expert. I'm not really sure. He's a guy who, who goes with uh, goes with um, James Bond and is appalled by Bond's cavalier attitude as Bond starts to egg on our... Uh, adversaries who will be yeah. introduced to properly later by starting to bid on the egg himself. Yeah, and there's a very unusual plot twist at this point or plot development where uh, Bond switches the egg in the middle of the auction, um, which, which is cra- which is crazy. Which is crazy because I don't think in an auction for priceless artifacts that it's standard to allow people to just 
you know, hold the stuff and look at it in the middle of it. And at, as we can see, Bond do like take it down underneath the table and then pop it back up again. I don't think Sotheby's allow that. Yeah. I have a feeling that's not really a thing. But anyhow, that's what Bond does. He he recognizes that someone else is bidding on it and must recover it. So he uh, he ups the bid just to piss them off. And that man, of course, will turn. Well, there's a woman there originally who is Magda, which is not a very pleasant name, no. honestly. And uh, then Kamal Khan is the the other man who joins, who starts the bidding. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Bond, the Fanning, the uh, antiques expert, he ba- he tells Bond that the egg shouldn't really fetch more than about two hundred thousand uh, pounds. But Bond, being the playful Bond that he is, he keeps uh, bidding and jacking up the price, and he forces Kamal Khan to pay five hundred thousand pounds for the eggs. And uh, he, not knowing that Bond had actually switched it in the middle and. And you bring up a good point about being able to handle the egg because even even like they're not even wearing gloves, but they're allowed to pass yeah. around the egg and examine it. It's a priceless Fabergé egg. But I mean, the, the, the anybody can touch it. Yeah, just like grabbing a priceless artifact and just hurling it at a wall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I just don't think it's a thing that's going to happen. But anyhow, as we as you pointed out earlier, the whole Fabergé egg thing is kind of not really that important to begin with. Yeah. But, I mean, what, what's our next step? They put a microphone in the egg. So, yeah, so they reveal that uh, M is, first of all, furious that Bond even made an attempt to bid on the egg. Uh, but that was just so Bond can get his hand on the real egg. And like you said, he switches it. So Bond brings back the real egg to MI6. Kamal Khan has just paid $500,000 for a, a fake egg. Um, the uh, I think believe the action at this point cuts to um, a... Uh, oh, we may have skipped over something, but it's okay. We can just go back. This covers... Uh, there's a uh, like a Russian summit inside of a giant military boardroom. Where oh, that's right, yes. General Orlov. Uh, he's basically... Uh, there's no real subtlety in this scene. He's a crazed general, and he basically wants to conquer Europe by unleashing a fleet of tanks on all sides of the uh, eastern continent. Um, but everyone is basically saying, uh, no, you're crazy, sit down. But when you, when you talk about the production design in this, this room is one of my favorites. Oh, it's Honestly, the series generally, because it's just, uh, it's the most ridiculously conceived of room because it's like there's a big round bench or table that everyone sits at, all the high-ranking Russian officials, and there's a screen on another wall but yeah. they don't face the wall. No. They, the entire table rotates with the, to yeah. face the wall with everyone still sitting there. And it's it's just the most bizarre concoction. But, of course, a fabulous piece of movie artifice. It just it just looks like a... I mean, honestly, it looks like a spoof of a James Bond set. Yeah. Um, but, yes, and, and Orloff is, uh, is, is clearly planning to take over Europe. Uh, through blitzkrieg tactics effectively he's, he's outlining yeah. how he can amass huge russian ground forces and just sweep europe which leads into uh, the the main plot category which uh, honestly this film is such a fractured plot in that yeah. honestly the main the main plot feels almost like an aside uh, things just kind of uh, gain importance and then just kind of sheer off into nothingness almost at a whim <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but Gogol uh, is there as well. Our our erstwhile Russian proxy. We always That's have right. General Gogol there. Um, I can't remember how many films he's been in at this point, but he he counts that Orlov is mad and he does not agree with this. Um, but we'll find that Orlov takes matters into his own hands later on. But we we'll, we will get back to that. Yes, this is a uh, yeah. This is um this is Gogol's fourth film. He's been with us since uh, the Spy Who Loved Me. 
Um, okay. Yeah, so that, that makes his first appearance. He's basically the M for the Russian agent Triple X. Um, but uh, yes, anyways, onward to India, where a bulk of the film takes place. Uh, they follow Kamal Khan to India, where Bond is uh, basically trying to find out more about his operation and why he needs the egg. Uh, this leads to him uh, making contact with his ally for the film, uh, VJ, played by uh, famed Indian tennis player VJ Amritaj, uh, who introduces himself to Bond by playing uh, the Bond 007 theme on a snake charming flute. Uh, Jack, what are your thoughts on this piece of meta? Oh, remarkable. I mean, it's no slight whistle over a car stunt, but it definitely uh, lets us know that we're not in, say, the Timothy Dalton era, for example. Um, I haven't got around to the Daniel Craig stuff yet, but I can't imagine there's many people just playing the James Bond theme to a snake in it. It's such a... uh, This film toes a very strange line between comedy and drama. It's it's got a lot of... um, I mean, even even casting Vijay Amarshaj is is sort of a, a knowing wink. He's a he was a famous tennis player at the time, yeah. and within a couple of minutes of him appearing, they work in a very obvious tennis gag, yeah. um, and he he hits some people with a tennis racket. So there's there's a lot of like just comic stuff going on here, um, but it, it's sort of strange. Uh, and also he releases the snake afterwards I don't know he's charming a snake by playing the James Bond theme and then once he meets up with Bond who he's undercover to be as a snake charmer but then once Bond shows up he just shakes hands with him and walks off with him I'm not sure what kind of cover that is <laughs> um, and then once he walks off he just lets the snake go yeah. <laughs> which I'm not sure is a cool thing because it's a cobra they're quite dangerous I've heard oh yeah as, you know not as, not as a snake expert myself but I've been led to believe cobras aren't the kind of thing you just let go into a large crowd of people um, I quite like the India sets you know they, they shot obviously on location in India and it's very wonderful and colourful and very exotic and it kind of struck me that it's unusual that we've made it this far into this franchise without I don't they've never been in India before you know we've we've visited several other countries more than once no. and yet they never went to India before so it's uh, kind of unusual just struck me as unusual that it took them this long to get there because it's obviously a a wonderful location to you know kind of create a, a sense of it the exotic and the the foreign for your typical English or Irish school kids uh, staying home from school it's very different to what you're used to seeing when you look out the window so mm-hmm. yes um, and the Fabergé egg is of course as you say it's tracked down what he needs it for I don't even remember why he needs it it's something to do with there's, there's jewellery that they're stealing but they're making high quality counterfeits of it to make people not know they're stealing it yeah. or maybe to set we can, I, like, to we, raise money for bomb it's not a very uh important setup yeah basically the the jewelry is being stolen to have counterfeit productions made and then those are replaced in the vault where they're from and then the real jewelry is used kamal khan is basically in on with general orlov he's using the real jewels to fund what would be his blitzkrieg operation that's basically that's 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 basically all you really need to know is that they're basically using the funds from the uh, priceless valuable uh jewels to uh to start world war three in europe which which again is confusing because he just told the 
presumably top-ranking Russian officials that all yeah. the tanks were already there, so I'm not sure what he's funding. It looks like Russia's already put this on the budget. But anyhow, that's what's happening, so try and keep up, everyone. Yeah, just to, <laughs> just, ju- just to jump ahead a couple films, uh, The Living Daylights has arguably a more confusing plot line akin to this, uh, and it has t- maybe took me a dozen watches to finally figure that one out so just keep that in mind if you don't get the living daylights the first time through it's okay i'll be there to help explain that's good uh, i'm glad yeah. this is we, we we split up the work on this podcast yeah. i take a couple of notes on who's who or whatever jake has to pay attention to the film that's it's all right. very it's a very complicated process we've worked out here and honestly in this one paying attention to the film really is uh takes a little bit little bit of work yeah so uh, i can't remember so so we're on i don't uh, remember where we, we get to so so he backgammon. there's a chase oh no back we should, okay we gotta the discuss the backgammon and then they do the chase okay so yes we have the backgammon which weirdly enough as, as someone i was reading up on this the back this okay so this this film does not there is actually a short story called octopussy and the living daylights mm-hmm. which is an ian fleming short story and obviously gave its name to two separate Bond films. Yeah. Nothing in either film is particularly related to this short story. Uh, the backgammon game actually is lifted from Moonraker. Just didn't make it into that one. Yeah. Um, but yes, they, they play backgammon and uh, he... Again, a very kind of odd scene in which uh, Kamal Khan is... Uh, basically very honestly very blatantly cheating and yeah. no one else notices There's a big crowd around he's cheating some british he's, general he gets double sixes every roll that's every highly time. suspect highly suspect and he gets to use his own dice that's like a point of the game yeah. is he gets to use his own dice and keeps rolling double sixes but anyway the the british general uh, resigns in disgust having lost lots of money and james bond takes over knowing of course that uh, he's cheating and bests him by using his dice. <laughs> like, how is that cheating gonna work? That you just, you know, I'll, I'm just gonna win now. But I'll just use your dice. Yeah, and it works. I don't, I don't actually know how backgammon works. I've actually never I've, just triangles on a board. Don't know how it works. But I, I, it's weird because as far as I can tell, um, only one of them makes a move. Uh, Bond rolls a double six and wins, um, and Khan does nothing in that turn. So I'm not sure how the betting system works for this, where only one person does something at a time. But it also introduced us very importantly to uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't remember his main henchman. Uh, oh, Gobinda. Gobinda. Yeah. Yes, good old, great. good old Gobinda, who is it's. <laughs> I feel bad about this. So he's played by Kabir Bedi, who is, I was reading up on him, is a, just a vastly accomplished Indian actor. He's been in so many films and television, and he's worked in Europe and India and America. And you know, he's huge in, in India, but also like in America, he was in big, like The Bold and the Beautiful and uh, several other like huge TV shows with recurring parts. Like he was huge. And I pretty much remember him as the man who grinds a pair of dice into dust in a James Bond movie. That's that's everything I know about Kabir Bedi. Um, mm-hmm. And that's pretty much, he's the main henchman. And I, I would have to admit, he's not a great henchman in this. He's not, there's not a huge amount that he gets to do. Yeah. He's not very memorable. He wears a turban. That's about it. He do, he doesn't say anything, as far as I can recall. Does he? He's not really. Maybe not. Maybe an odd line, but yeah, he does line. T- take the like the role of like the hulking silent henchman. He crushes he crushes the loaded dice, which is akin to odd job crushing the the fake the golf ball that Goldfinger uses to try to rig the game. So that's yes. it's kind of a kind of a throwback to that. 
Um, one thing I will say though about the backgammon sequence that I love is that you don't have to understand how to play backgammon, but it's really all in the execution of uh, how Bond plays the game because he takes the loaded dice from Kamal Khan and then he rolls it onto the board and without even looking down, he announces that he gets double sixes with a slight smile on his face. So it's it's very much like the Bond beating uh, the villain at his own game. Um, and it's, it's very satisfying just to see Roger Moore uh, totally pull off that move with perfect execution, I think. It's it's a cool, like the, these are the kind of scenes I think where Roger Moore is, is the perfect bond yeah it's you know it's it it just plays absolutely into his strengths his wheelhouse um and yes so so kamal khan is out a lot of money and has announced himself effectively that uh, or bond has announced himself to him at this point mm-hmm. which leads i think leads us into the chase uh yeah Good. bond and vj meet up and they have to they have to escape with the large amounts of money that they've pocketed which actually comes into use later on which is uh, surprising yeah so yeah, Gabinda basically grabs a giant uh, blunderbuss, and uh, it's it looks, it's <laughs> it a comical a- cartoon like horn blunderbuss that Elmer Fudd would use. And I don't understand because it's just a shot. It's a sawn-off shotgun with a blunderbuss stuck on the end, and I don't understand yeah. why that's a thing. Anyways, yeah, so there's a giant chase through the streets of uh, India. They run through various merchants. Um, at one point, they they're on they're on like these little tuk tuk uh, vehicles. Um, VJ starts hitting people, and every time he hits someone, it makes the sound of a tennis racket. He's he's wielding a tennis racket. I should have said, every time he hits somebody, he's it sounds like a tennis racket hitting a tennis ball. And as they drive by spectators, they're like doing the head left and right uh, motion, like they're watching a tennis <laughs> match. It's very it ridiculous. Is, um, it is a very ridiculous, and it's not the there. There's several sequences in this film where it really plays into broad comedy like very broad comedy but yeah with the sort of a and, and also this is probably something that hasn't aged particularly gracefully in one sense because honestly i'm not sure that you know unless you're really into tennis probably not really recalling uh, that this guy is actually a tennis player in real life it's sort of a, a, a extra textual joke that kind of is lost yeah well then the chase once they get off the tuk-tuks they're in like this little center where there's all these um panhandlers uh, Bond knocks one guy onto a bed of hot coals. Uh, he then pulls a sword out of a sword swallower to wield it against the guy who grabs the uh, like the fire breather's torch, and then he throws another guy onto a bed of nails, prompting the, the, f- the guy who owns the bed of nails to say, "Get off my bed." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very silly, and that bed of nails is there's there's a couple of points in this film where I'm really. As much as we talked about the quality of the production design and like uh, clearly you know uh, plenty of money was invested in this some elements of it look so cheap and rushed yeah that bed of nails being when <laughs> when the guy hits it and it maybe it's like it, this isn't even a question of like oh hd has done this film no favors like this must have been front and center for anyone watching it in cinema at all or even like on on a tube tv back in 1990s like all the nails on the bed just bend randomly when the guy hits like the impact of the body on it makes all of the fake nails just like flay all over the place yeah uh, it's a really stupid joke but that's it and, and it really it's and it's almost like they have a checklist of like things i know about india um and, and they're like checking them off like yeah. tuk tuk and a river palace and a sword swallower and a bed of nails and they're just like checking them all off and it's, it's kind of like becomes pretty obvious pretty soon that they don't actually uh, know 
that much about India generally. Yeah, no, it's just all like stereotypes that they would get from cartoons. Um. Anyways, well, right. it's, it's it's not it's not like Britain is any kind of cultural link to India or anything. Oh you no, could be expected to know anything about them. Clearly. No, no, no Indian has ever set foot in the United Kingdom. No, not at all. <laughs> all right. Well, anyways, Bonda and VJ escape. They throw Kamal Khan's money in the air, and everybody rushes and cuts him off from uh, Gobinda and his men, and they hide behind a uh, poster, that, which they drive through and is replaced by a freshly prepared poster, which I think is kind of neat. Uh, and this brings yeah, them... I kind of like that gag, yeah. Yeah, it brings them into... Uh, it's like one of the old... Uh, it's, it's also like a very much a Bugs Bunny gag where... Uh, the coyote will run into a wall that's painted to look like a road. It's like the inverse of that. Where they'll run into a wall and then paint a road on it or something. Anyways, um, yeah, this takes us into Q's lab uh, where Q is uh, particularly crotchety at Bond. Um, he gives him his uh, acid pen, which I mentioned earlier. And then he puts a uh, microchip in the Fabergé egg, which acts as both a homing beacon and a microphone for Bond to listen in on. Um, Let's see here. Skipping forward a bit, uh, Bond makes contact with uh, Magda, the aforementioned uh, villain lady, Magda, uh, and he beds her for the evening. Um, and now this scene uh, with Bond and Magda, I think, might be the worst kiss in any Bond movie. Uh, it's really uncomfortable to watch uh, 56-year-old Roger Moore kiss a 32-year-old woman um, like this. I, I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Jack? It's it's a very well it's it's kind of an interesting scene I think in in one way because I feel like as I recall there's really there there's she by the end of it she double crosses him she grabs a Fabergé egg and she makes her escape I feel like there it's one of those scenes where there's no pretense that they're like they're just she's there just to get something back from him there's no yeah wrote, like they're definitely no there's definitely like she's definitely not hooking up with Bond out of like love or affection or whatever she's just doing it as part of a job and bond lets it happen because oh, yeah. he's just he's just like that well so, he wants yeah. it to get stolen so then he can track her to kamal khan's Exa lair. yeah so it, it's a very like they both of them devoted a whole night and a couple of body fluids to basically something that he could have just left it somewhere mm -hmm. wasn't the same thing they want to grab it they still think it's real so yeah and it's uh yeah, I, I don't recall. I probably I just you know probably very shy and demure and looked away during the kiss because they're not they're not married. So it's yeah, just it, it's it's an living inappropriate. In, I see living in sin. Yeah, um, but yeah, Magda of course is one of the two Swedish actresses in this. A very Swedish film. Christina yeah. Wayborn is is she is Swedish and and suitably foreign. There are this this film just at the point. I like I feel like this film was set some kind of like a record for white women in saris. Like there's. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a film set in India, like, there are no Indian women, women in this film, pretty much. Like, they pepper the background here and there, but, like, there is not a single Indian woman foregrounded in the cast, which is kind of insane, honestly. Yeah. India kind of having, you know, a film industry that's very large. Uh, but, yeah, this is what they did. They, they settled on two Swedish women to be in India. But anyhow, yes, they she she gets Fabergé back, back and she performs kind of a cool little stunt. I like uh, which it. I believe she Which I believe she actually, uh, uh, Weborn actually performed herself, I believe, where she just tips backwards out a window and then unwraps her, her sari to gently waft down to the ground and make good her escape. And 
James Bond congratulates her on it, and they've both played each other effectively. Both of them think they're winning at the time, which is a nice a nice way to set things up. Yeah, I I kind I really like that that Cirque du Soleil move she pulls to escape, and then uh, Kamal Khan immediately pulls up and uh, blankets her, and they uh, they drive off and. Uh, they th- it's great because they think that they've won and they've stolen the real Fabergé egg. So for those keeping track at home, now Kamal Khan has uh, possession of both the fake and the real Fabergé egg, um, which uh, I guess this leads to the next bit where um, uh, is Bond kidnapped at this point and brought to Kamal Khan's uh, palace? Because I think uh, I think Gabinda captures him right, and then he's forced. He's uh, next thing we know, he's seated at dinner. With Kamal Khan, and they eat uh, stuffed sheep's head. That that sounds about right. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of stuff going on here. It, That's true. There is a lot. Uh, yeah, I took. I like. It's what. It's. Uh, there's a lot going on that doesn't have a particularly consistent narrative value. I think that's the problem here. Is that there's a lot of like things that are independently important within. Mm-hmm. the given scene that then as i say just kind of shear off into nothingness like the fabricity egg it becomes irrelevant almost at this point um it's just a trinket uh and yeah he's kidnapped and brought to kamal khan's uh palace where yeah. he i say again weirdly this struck me as kind of funny because um james bond of course is the the worldly man who who is you know debonair and knows everything and he is repulsed by this sheep's head which as far as i'm aware is a middle eastern delicacy i feel like maybe he would have been briefed on that yeah uh, maybe been okay with it but no he's like oh i can't believe they eat this crap yeah uh, so yeah not so debonair now bond and are you kamal khan happily munches on an eyeball in bond's presence yeah well everyone knows the eyeballs are, are the most valued part so yeah you know he knows what he's doing also this is a weird one um not particularly connected to the plot per se, but this is something I was kind of keeping track of throughout this film. Is there, there's a number of real world uh, kind of vectors in this film. Um, we have obviously Soviet paranoia. We have concern about right. uh, the Soviet Union taking over Europe. And then we also have Kamal Khan, who is noted as an Afghan prince. So we have Afghanistan brought in, which is was the flashpoint between East and West. At this juncture, there's a proxy war going on uh, between the Soviet Union and America. Um, and like all these little details are there and it's nothing is made of it really it's kind of a as we reveal the the grander plotters we'll get to it it's kind of such a again kind of a MacGuffin there's such a pointless kind of uh, marrying of these potentially volatile ingredients that kind of all kind of fizzle down to the most dull sort of status quo thing um, yeah, it's yeah. which is you know kind of like the the power structure is fine and Russia is kind of like Russia are the bad guys but Gogol's okay. It's it's kind of like it's a weird kind of like gloves are on at all times sort of vision of the world mm-hmm. where there's definitely good guys and bad guys but even the bad guys are kind of okay because they you know Gogol is not going to do anything crazy because he understands how these things work. You know exactly. It's, it's just sort of a strange setup and Kamal Khan as well is and I, I'm not particularly impressed with him as a villain. Per se, he's, he's played. We don't just mention he's played by um, by Louis Jordan, Louis who's Jordan. a, a who is a French actor of great renown. He's been in many films by like Hitchcock or Fools Le Bier, or these great film directors. He has a very long and storied film career. He doesn't really have a lot to work with here, and he sort of and and the characters I say really kind of fizzles for me because he doesn't uh, other than like his his identity is largely aiding Orloff. 
Yeah. And then Orlov, uh, like, not to spoil too much, Orlov dies pretty soon after this and he's done. There's um, a, yeah, there's so, actually so a lot of villainry going on in this film. Um, like, there's a there's whole... to little effect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They're all, they're all, they're all, nobody really gets a, ch- like, nobody really shines brighter than the others. I mean, we mentioned uh, the knife throwers, twin, the knife throwing twins earlier, Mishka and Grishka, they return later yes. on. Uh, Gobinda is just a silent muscle. Um, Kamal Khan is, he's a variation on, like, you know, rich, uh, like, he's like a Drax uh analog from moonraker um and then we uh with we should mention that um with uh with kamal khan we meet what is ostensibly our villain turned bond girl of the film uh octopussy herself played by maude adams um she's she's given a uh she has like a, a blue ringed octopus lair and that's like what her her, she has like a, a, a circus team that follow that, um, but she she has like a very Blofeld like uh, first appearance where she's only seen in the voice and in the bathrobe, but we never see her face. So we 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 finally get the impression, oh, this is the big heavy pulling all the strings. But the film does not commit to her being as the main heavy. It's she's you know ultimately turns and is saved by Bond. So. Um, yeah, the villains are really disappointing in this film. Um, they are, yeah, and, and even even say like Kamal Khan as like a an analog of say Drax or someone like he doesn't even have a grand vision. He's just like a, he's just he's he's fine with war and he'll make money off it. Yeah, you know, it's and that's and that's like that's just a politician. That's you know. Like, we've got tons of those already. I want someone who wants to make fish people, you know, mm-hmm. something crazy, you know, someone who just wants to, like, blow up the moon for no reason. <laughs> something just grandly stupid. Yeah. And they're, like, there doesn't seem to be that. And, yeah, Octopussy is ostensibly our villain. And, um, God, <laughs> as, as we talk about, like, the male gaze of James Bond films, one of the things I really enjoyed about Octopussy is that this woman who's in charge the outfits her employees wear. Oh my god, um, those I, red jumpsuits! I, the red jumpsuit. Like, I don't think a woman would choose these. Not, not just for fashion purposes, but just you know, these glaring, awful, stupid-looking things. Uh, this is definitely, uh, I guess, my octopusy outsourced all of her her stuff to a guy, a weird, horny freak. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but. Yes, octopusy uh, is introduced, and even she has kind of a. a well, first, I suppose it's interesting. Um, she's revealed. It's a, originally she's she's heard only in voice, and then she's revealed. And weirdly enough, Maud Adams is again a recycled actor within yeah. the franchise. She has previously been in The Man with the Golden Gun. That's right. Uh, where she played, she was murdered in that film, so she was playing a completely separate character. There's no continuation between them. Uh, and she mentions uh, in one of the, the plot points that she did take from uh, I can't remember if it was from this book or not, but. Um, that uh, she has in, feels indebted immediately to Bond because her father apparently was found guilty of treason and Bond was sent to arrest him and James Bond allowed him to commit suicide with dignity rather than uh, be you know face trial for treason and she is grateful for Bond for letting him do that which seems kind of weird to me honestly because you know everything that Bond represents maybe she wouldn't be that cool about James Bond forcing her dad to have to commit suicide yeah <laughs> but but anyway she's grateful to him that's all you know set up and yeah she has it's 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 so strange because she has a circus troupe performers uh, you know or a group 
And then there's they link in with another circus. There's multiple circuses that unite in this film. Yeah. Um, in a way that doesn't really heavy. make any sense. Uh, that she has troops who are in the circus and then the knife-throwing assassin twins also work in a circus. But they don't work for each other. These are like different groups of people who moonlight as henchmen, I guess, that all gather around a circus yeah. that travels Europe together. It's a very we. It's a very weird like like you feel like there. This is like a John Wick opportunity to create this world building on concept of like carnies that are all like you know work for weird shadowy organizations as uh, you know off the off the books but it's just not really addressed at all it's just like a weird understood plot contrivance that they all end up in the same place because they all need to be in the same place yeah it's it's crazy is that the the ultimate goal of the film is uh they're going under the guise of a traveling circus they're going to smuggle a nuclear bomb into an American base so that they can set it off through the use of Fabergé eggs to trade for the weapons or some shit like that. That's basically that's basically what it becomes yeah, the I, ultimate mission for Bond to stop is he has to defuse a, a yeah, bomb I, inside a base. I don't really understand. Yeah, the Fabergé egg is part of like a tra- like the there are jewels that are being sold to raise the money for the military mission that they don't need the money for because we already clarified that yeah. the Russian military's already deployed all those forces. But there's a bomb and they're going to set it off and the idea behind it is that the bomb will when it goes off it won't be a missile there'll be no trace of it of an incoming atomic bomb so they'll reckon it must have come from within the base itself and they'll reckon it must be the americans mishandled an atomic bomb on european soil yeah. and detonated it so this will force europe will will pull the trigger and they'll disarm completely yeah. get rid of all their nuclear weapons based on this horrible tragedy and that will leave the this that will leave europe ripe to be right to be taken over by russia which is the weirdest pro nuclear deterrent propaganda i can imagine yeah i Uh, I wonder if the cold war was happening when this film was made do you think yes it's it's weird isn't it that that whole argument about like if we Uh, put away our weapons of mass destruction russia will come a knocking yeah um it's it's a really ridiculous plot and it's such a uh i mean orlov's plot is so you know yeah if we detonate a nuclear bomb europe will just get rid of nuclear weapons and then we'll be able to come in and it's like that doesn't it's just it's such a presumptuous plot like it's so tangled and convoluted and unconvincing and yet that is the main thrust like at the end of it that's really what the film aims for and the big dramatic set piece of the film is the bomb that we have this bomb traveling in a train with a timer on it and it's going towards the 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 circus and yeah it's it's just uh it's it's a weird in the way the film just vacillates between you know goofy things like the the tennis match and the the james bond theme being played on a flute and at one point james bond swings and vines and there's a tarzan noise yeah dresses he disguises as an ape you know and all of these things coupled with you know nuclear devastation it's yeah it's (laughs) it's a very like people give this you know brush this off as like one of the silly outings but it's it's a very tonally confused and bizarre movie even by james bond standards there's 
uh, and especially like the climax um, when we're, we're skipping ahead a bit, but it's okay. Where we're, there's like a, there's one of the like a storm the tower finales where Bond leads a, the army of circus acrobats against Kamal Khan's palace, and Bond is just like picking off people left and right with a machine gun. Like he at one point slides down a uh, stairwell banister and he's just gunning people left and right. Um, so yeah, it's a, it, 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 it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, tonally it's messy, but you know, I, I think, I think yeah, they were having fun making it. Like, they, they were having fun. Yeah. It, it's just, I suppose it's one of those things where the plot is, you know, I, I guess it's so goofy and you think, you know, if you're going this goofy, does the plot even matter? But they still mm-hmm. worked really hard to come up with plot elements. Now they never managed to make them all fit together, but you kind of wonder why do they even, do they even need to try this much? You yeah. know, and it becomes distracting. Like you said, like the Fabergé egg, you know, swaps. Yeah. So it doesn't. It really doesn't matter. No one cares. It doesn't. Is it real? Is it fake? It's completely irrelevant. Yeah. So wrapping up the uh, Fabergé egg. So now that Bond's in captivity, Kamal Khan brings the real egg uh, stolen by Magda to General Olaf. And now that they have it, General Olaf, he's basically relieved that they don't have to follow the eggs around. So he takes the butt of his gun and he smashes what he thinks is the fake Fabergé egg, but it's the real one because uh, Q's transmitter pops out of it. So they just destroyed a priceless egg. So not only do they have the fake egg, which is never made mention of again, but they obliterate the real one. (laughs) Oh, war is hell. Yeah. You know, it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, well, and, yes. and, and Bond escapes uh, with the acid pen. He, ben- he burns the bars of his holding cell, and uh, he sneaks out in a body bag, and uh, which coincides with Kamal Khan having uh, like a, a safari hunt that he, I guess, he had planned earlier that day. And Bond is a uh, basically like you mentioned, he's running through the jungle. He encounters a tiger, uh, spiders. Uh, he tells a snake to hiss off. And uh, yes, yes. Yeah. and and again in talking about very you know kind of shot like notably shoddy production details, there is a close up when the tiger attacks. Uh, yeah, that is like the fakest fake tiger head you could imagine shows up for just a split second on the screen. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's just a weird. See- and it, and uh, of course to point out again, Roger Moore is fifty six years old throughout yeah. all of this, very he- visibly fifty six years old. No, he he's dead. In this, he, there's no <laughs> way. Also, what what they will notice as well about this film as I watch it is that his stunt double is much blonder than he is. That This is true. <laughs> this is totally true. And his, his stunt double for some reason lets out a Tarzan yell. Uh, well, yeah, I know it was 80 yards, but still, why would you let out? The Tarzan yell is like the worst thing in the movie for me uh, because A, it's, it's silly uh, that they would include that and, and, uh, and have Bond do it. And B, if he's trying to be you know, sneaking through the jungle to get away from armed men with rifles. You don't want to be yelling like Tarzan up in the tree vine. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, like uh, as a joke, it doesn't like. It's, w- what is the joke? It's, to- it's, it's totally like, like they're in po- in post. Like this, it's like the slide whistle. It's like they're in post. Yeah. Like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if he has a Tarzan yell? And I'm like, if, I'm like, no, he would not. No, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it would be enough for him to just swing from vine to vine, and people go, oh, just like Tarzan. Yeah. Like, you don't need to label that more heavily. Like, we are aware of Tarzan. That's the thing. You don't have to go that hard. Yeah. But that's what they did. 
So yes, uh, and Bond ultimately escapes because of course he does because otherwise the film yeah. would end very prematurely. Yeah, Bond escapes. Um, he gets wind of uh, Kamal Khan's plan, so he boards uh, the train which is carrying the nuclear device. Uh, he fights uh, Gabinda and kills the uh, the two knife throwing henchmen. Uh, well, he only kills one first by he, dropping a cannon on his head, which kills one with the cannon. Um, and then he takes his outfit, tricks his twin brother into thinking, "Oh, his brother's alive." But then that he that guy chases Bond into uh, like an abandoned mine shaft and tries to pin him down and kill him with a knife. But Bond breaks free of that and kills the other one. So the twins are dispatched. Uh, eventually, and, and I think during this point, uh, Orlov is also gunned down on the train track. So he's he's all in the film for like maybe four minutes. Um, yes. Yeah. And he's he's it's so disappointing because yeah. like Orlov is like he's a like he, at least he has a vision mm-hmm. as a villain. Like he's got a vision of Soviet domination of Europe. You yeah. know, and setting up like this this complete control. You know, a true East West power you know kind of power struggle yeah. and he's, he's mad with power and he sees a vision for mother russia etc you know and you could get behind that like that's a real you know madman vision that should fuel the film and but like you say he's barely on the screen no. he, he, he really his best scene is to start like the very first scene where he outlines everything in the briefing room after that he's just a guy exactly. kind of managing some stuff he just trades a couple of bits here and there it's just a very yeah, very underwhelming kind of a, a thing, and and I think Steve Burkoff, who plays him, does, you know, he does fine with what he's got. He's wide eyed and kind of intense. But oh yeah, that's, uh, that's it. Like d- he's, he's got nothing else. Uh, definitely playing to the rafter rafters with his performance, and and yeah, like you said, once you see that first scene, you're like, oh, this guy's. Well, what's this? You know, crazy eccentric mad general gonna do? It's like, oh, very little. Okay, great. <laughs> He's gonna get gunned down on a railway track. Yeah, uh, ac- basically accidentally because they think he's a defector. Like he actually gets killed by East German police. Yeah. Uh, so he gets killed by his own people. He effectively. might. He might. He's Niedermeyer from Animal House. He might be the worst <laughs> general. He's he reveals his plan to basically kickstart World War Three with a Blitzkrieg tank assault. He smashes a real priceless Fabergé. <laughs> egg and then he gets shot by his own troops he's the most incompetent general in the james bond history he is um yeah yeah he's pretty bad although i've got to say the american general that we'll encounter very very soon is not a not a very uh, uh what we say um flattering account of american military which i think is a little interesting too well we'll get to that though uh first off james bond steals a a car mm-hmm. and has a chase and the wheels the tires get shot out but of course as everyone knows and this is standard knowledge anyone oh, yeah. understands this once you shoot the tires out in a car the wheel rims fit perfectly with train tracks and yeah. you can then drive a car as a train I that's understood yeah, we all know that I don't know if most people know that but yeah you're right The uh, your average sedan the width is the exact length of train rails so yeah uh, no it's a standard feature they, they bred those together that was you know Elon Musk is bringing this back with his ginormous <laughs> tunnel that's just a car trade it's really just reintegrating uh, old technology I can't, it's a very uh, it's it's another just silly and I, I mean it's james bond i should i can't really complain that much and honestly uh, no. it's, it's objectively less silly than a lot of what has happened before um and uh, you know it's kind of funny and he does he does there's a couple of car stunts he goes up on two wheels and you know does a couple of other g- general james bond things and he just stole mm-hmm. this this 
car from some poor lady in a square in Germany. That's right. Um, it's like the Christian Petzold film that never got made. We'd follow her home in his film and find out <laughs> about the miseries of her life. But um, yeah, it's, uh, so he, he catches up and the train rolls on into the American uh, base and into the into the the into an American base because they're having a circus performed there. I don't know if trains just travel straight from East Germany into American military bases. Hey, Not yeah. a Cold War scholar by any means. Seems a little unlikely. Um, but anyway, so there's a big circus going on and the bomb, of course, is on this train in the middle of the circus. It's actually in the cannon. There's a guy who's stunt as he gets shot out of a cannon uh, and mm-hmm. the bomb is concealed in the base of the cannon just as a big useful prop for that. Yeah. I will say at this point, like I mentioned before, the American general who is sitting through this circus is like the biggest, loudest, crass oh, just, just a child. Big, big oaf, yeah. And and I do wonder, like, is this a critique of, you know, American nuclear policy versus Russian? Like, the Russians are mad, the American are big, goofy children. Like, is is there some commentary here? I don't really think so. Maybe, and, like, maybe it's a jab, like, from the British perspective, because Britain is, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, Britain still has an empire, they think. Uh, you know, like kind of, uh, you know, rather than just following America into whatever whatever mistake America makes, Britain helps them out with it. That's kind of our current setup. Yeah, um, I mean that that you know, so so like I feel like it's just just a British jab at like you know, oh the Americans are so uncouth and foolish. Not like James Bond who disguised himself as a gorilla not moments beforehand. Not like it doesn't really make sense as a, even a commentary. But I thought it was unusual that their depiction of the American was of the really the only major. American the whole film in, in one sense that general it's not a huge role no. but it's a very unflattering presentation but yeah I don't think it's going anywhere nothing in this film really feels like it's going anywhere no um, um, but James Bond of course to diffuse all of this right so he disguises a gorilla for a while to hide out and overhear their plans right and then he disguises and this is after disguising himself as the knife thrower mm-hmm. and then he disguises himself as a gorilla and then of course he puts on full clown costumes just like 009 did originally. Apparently, they must um, 00 training must include doing clown face makeup. Yeah, because Bond does that in record time, like full white face with teardrop everything. Yeah, um, it's crazy. Whole thing worked out, and then he comes out as a fully fledged clown and runs into a circus to scream, "There's a bomb!" Yeah, and of course everyone laughs because what? What else would well, you right, do? Clowns, well, they're silly. You can't. Yeah, every, everyone clowns. knows Pagliacci's great routine. There's an atomic bomb in the. <laughs> Circus is hugely popular. But, uh, Doctor, there know. is a nuclear bomb in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like such a goofy thing but uh, oh. but after a big like and again it's such a it feels again like they're playing you know to the gods or to the kids um, like there's a big circus pile on acrobats and clowns all kicking each other and falling over each other and the American general laughing like a big fat child right and but eventually it all works out and they 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 convince him no Octopussy the- uh, she saves the day she opens the base of the cannon and reveals oh that's- there is is a nuclear bomb there so that's right and she does it and she does it by shooting a gun at the door oh, right. it was yeah. a really good a really good thing to do in a crowded uh, thing crowded crowded venue is just to discharge a firearm um, but yes and they find and this is one thing that I thought was kind of unusual in the film there's all this tension in the bomb ticking down as always I mean it's a classic 
device of tension in a film is a bomb about to go off and uh, then James Bond literally just turns the thing and pops it out and it's done like there's no like tense diffusion scene mm-hmm. you know and I felt as I was watching it was like it's they're, like the timer you know, they cut to the timers you have to do to let everyone know how tense they should be and it's like ticking down and like at a certain yeah. point it's like at five seconds left to go and you're like Matt how are they going to even fit in a diffusing scene here like this five seconds is not a lot and then Bond just pulls out the center of it and it's done Yeah, and it's like oh okay and also one thing I really liked about this is from the idea of plausible deniability like what if this hadn't worked mm-hmm. um, you know I, I feel like that's something if you were going to create a international nuclear incident plausible deniability is probably something you want to build into your plan I feel like Orloff probably maybe thought of that there's all this Russian type on the front of the bomb <laughs> like, right no one no one's gonna be you know surprised about where this thing originated from yeah uh, I mean sure if it goes off there won't be a bomb left but you know they, they find it and it's like where, where did this come from I think we know so anyway, they, they save the day. And at that point, honestly, the film ends in one, like from a tension perspective, it ends. The bomb is done with, but obviously but it hasn't ended. There's because, still like 30 minutes to go. There's yes. all this action they have to take care of. There's a the, storm that there's like I mentioned so that we will go through it rather quickly, I guess. There's a there's not much more to say. There's a storm, the tower, uh, uh, sequence where Bond it lands on a hot air balloon with Q in tow. It's always nice to see Q in the field. And it just uh, shows up in a Union Jack hot air balloon. That's which, right. Of course, the Secret Service keeps around for missions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's like one thing that the Americans are loud and oafish, but like the uh, the the British aren't quite modest in these films either. We should say. I, yeah, I, I like the way he shows up in it, and it's like specifically one guy catches Magda with a machine gun, like off guard, and she's yeah. like, "Oh no, I'm gonna get shot!" And then like this slow moving balloon just creeps in and hits him and it's like that is the only tactic or situation where a hot air balloon would be like if you're in a hot air balloon in a gunfight you are probably not an advantage to anyone right and they're very slow moving and they can't change direction quickly pretty easy to uh, shoot one of those things but q has it all worked out yeah and yes and we have and again it is a they storm the castle and at this point it's really all just circus performers doing circus tricks in a fashion that is useful for fighting or for you know story like they they do acrobats to climb acrobatics to climb the walls mm-hmm. and it's a very you know kind of one-to-one it, it, like I said, it's a kid's film it feels very like a kid's film it's sort of like you know this is what acrobats do what if they need to get up a wall you know and it, it's it there's not a lot of I suppose there's not a lot of magic majesty or mystery to it at all it just feels very flat to me this whole kind of sequence i don't know it's yeah i mean even like the villain we we haven't even brought up yet that the villains have like a, the, one of their henchmen has a saw blade on a yo-yo uh oh, which would right, only yeah. work from it's like motorized but it would only work if he's dropping it from the second floor of a building so it's it's pretty much otherwise a useless weapon it is um, very lucky that octopus he has a large like kind of platform just over her bed yeah <laughs> it's just Oh, so that's it. Should probably get rid of that later on. But yes, of, uh, that's right. I'd even forgotten about that. We we also have mentioned. I mean, just talk about there's a fake crocodile scuba yeah. thing that Bond <laughs> uses to get in and out of places, which is the most ridiculous 
design, but you know, it's I mean, just like you know, these throwaway a, gags. It's a, it's a graduating up from like the dead seagull head at the beginning of uh, Goldfinger. <laughs> you know, now he's got a full crocodile suit. Which... It's, it's true, a full crocodile suit that opens both at the mouth and the back. Yeah, which I don't really under. I don't like to look out through the mouth. The whole mouth has to like open. The upper jaw comes up like to ninety degree angle from the rest of it, which. You know, you wouldn't have to be that f- close to it to realize that crocodiles don't work that way. And nah. That's not a crocodile. But anyway. <laughs> just a cursory just glance at a crocodile unhinging <laughs> its jaw to let out a human man. It's, yeah, it's like, somebody looking at it like, that's a screwed up crocodile out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's say that. But then in the news recently, yeah, there were reports going around like in Texas or Florida or somewhere of a crocodile with a knife sticking out of its head just oh, spotted yeah. walking around. So yeah, you know, who knows? Um, but anyhow, yeah, a lot of things happen. None of them of any great consequence. We we storm the the castle. Mm-hmm. Octopussy, Octopussy, of course, having been kind of betrayed by Kamal Khan, is getting her revenge against him. Yeah, um, yeah, and she she's captured by uh, Kamal Khan. He and Gabinda take her out on a plane. Uh, Bond gives chase on horseback and grabs onto the plane and. Uh, as ridiculous as Roger Moore running from a safari through the woods is at the age of 56, uh, imagine 56-year-old Roger Moore holding on to the exterior of an airplane when it's thousands of feet up in the air. This is yeah. crazy. Like, he's got, like, the best grip strength of anyone I've ever seen. It is. It's ridiculous, but also I will have to say this is probably... I mean, stunt work alone and action alone, like this is probably the best part of the movie for this kind of element. Oh yeah. The horse, like the horse scene, even like the horse coming up on the airplane is like, it's punchy and fast. The man on the horse is noticeably blonder than Roger Moore. Whatever, fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like it's a good. You know, it's it's a good bones for an action film. The the stunt work for the plane is insane, frankly. Oh, exactly. Because uh, they because they did absolutely just strap some poor bastard to the outside of a plane. The uh, <laughs> um, I, I want to take a moment just to praise the the work of uh, John Glenn. Um, I mean, he's not a, quite a classy director as like Guy Hamilton or Peter Huntar, but he certainly does know his way around an action scene and I think a lot of what might hold him back uh, at least in this film and the next one is kind of cutting around Roger Moore's stunt double uh, which he's not always successful Um, but once we get to uh, just a little teaser once we get to the Timothy Dalton films that he directs uh, the action is is exceptional and I there's a uh, there's a similar exterior of a plane climax in the living daylights uh which uh is just phenomenal to watch so he he certainly does have an eye for action and constructing at least great set pieces even if the plots of his films don't make any narrative sense at all yes yeah i mean like honestly there's only so much you can do and like this feels like you know they, they just had to arrive at an excuse for this airplane sequence and i'm i'm fine with that i like i i don't know how much of a how much of an input Glenn had in the film. Mm-hmm. I feel like the script was probably pretty disjointed to begin with. I don't think there was any fixing it. Yeah. So he just he he did his job. Um and yeah, the the plane sequence is excuse me, pretty pretty exhilarating in terms of like it it's really impressive stunt work. This is one of those ones where you're looking at it going like that is genuinely life and limb stuff right there. Um but also kind of goofy because he sends Gobinda out. Yeah. <laughs> I just like, you've got a man 
holding on for dear life to the outside of a plane. Just keep doing barrel rolls for a few minutes yeah, and you'll lose just, him. Just keep going. He can't hold on. Like, no one could hold on. But instead, he tells poor Gabinda to go out and knock him off the plane. Like, literally, just go outside and get him. No. And, of course, Gabinda gets a, a, a bond... In, and he's such a weird like Gobinda deserves better mate but he's not really he's not a very good henchman there's yeah. not much to him and in the end he's clinging to the outside of a plane and uh, James Bond literally pulls down an aerial and slaps him in the face with it and he falls to his death yeah which is a suitably just ridiculous death um, and then he just pulls out some there's just some nondescript panel on the outside of the plane and he pulls out some wires and the engines turn off because that's definitely a thing most planes have. yeah what um, you want to do is crash the plane you're holding on to for dear life uh, if you can't get inside of it you know that's always yeah, a secret agent's best th- course of action <laughs> that, that is very true bond does that purely on literally on a wing on a prayer um <laughs> because and he does that and he manages to bust inside and grab octopussy who is uh semi-conscious in there yeah. uh, she, she comes out and he grabs her and they in in a physics defying maneuver uh, as the plane flies low over a, an outcrop a rocky outcrop they jump from the plane and roll to their safety as if the plane is not doing uh, hundreds of miles an hour no yeah there's no, no inertia <laughs> whatsoever no they, they roll like literally 20 feet maybe yeah um, to their safety and then the plane crashes and I, I feel like the plane you don't even see the plane crash I think they just oh, hear do. an explosion yeah. there's, a, you, okay, there's I, a cut to I, Kamal Khan like frantically uh, trying to steer it, but it, it crashes into the side of a mountain and explodes. Okay, I do, yeah. you know, it's so memorable a sequence, I've literally forgotten that the plane yeah. crashes. But, and that's the end of Kamal Khan, and honestly, as I said, I was so stoked in the in the opening sequence of this film, I was like, oh my god, this is all flooding back to me, I'm so ready for this, and then the film itself is just sort of it's just sort of dull, honestly. It just yeah. it, it never it never excels. It never it never gets out of like second gear, yeah. and the comedy sort of holds it back. So, eh, it's it's not it's not great. I'm unfortunately. Yeah, I'm mildly positive on it, um, but uh, and I can I can see why a lot of people who maybe grew up this one with this one have some fondness towards it. But um, yeah, it does. Uh, it becomes exhausting to watch, um, which is not really what a desired effect of a Bond film. Um, there's there's a lot going on. Like uh, every time I watch this movie, I always, for some reason, I have like the the Baron, the the Mandela effect of the entire film takes place in India, and I think it's just the Indian portion of the film. But no, that's only like a hour, and then there's an additional hour of them in East Berlin, and then there's the train and the circus and the plane, and the storming of the tower, and there's just like a lot, a lot just piled onto it. So it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's very overstuffed. It's very messy. Like we mentioned, it's tonally it's uh, it's um, it's chaotic and and the plot is you know as, as as little as the plots matter in these films this one is particularly troublesome because it's uh, doesn't make sense um, so yeah there's a there's a lot going on with uh, octopusy um, it's about as crazy as its title I guess you could say <laughs> yeah I mean I guess maybe the feeling is like it's if you're gonna do it like maybe it should be crazier i don't like maybe they should have just given in and made it just like totally wild i don't know what that would be instead it's it feel yeah it feels like it's kind of hanging between two 
posts yeah. and the sort of like it's it's a kids comedy and it's also a you know kind of a spy thriller and really it doesn't right. it doesn't really satisfy either of them it, it really kind of peters out and i'm the same way in that like as, as a kid i remember the jet plane and the horse box i remember yeah. the clown i remember the circus punch-up i don't remember there being a bomb i don't remember east germany west germany i don't even remember the plane like i don't remember the whole plane thing at the end because all of those were just you know as good as the stonework like now as an adult i can register wow the stonework is really impressive but the actual circumstances of it as an action scene are really kind of perfunctory and you know sort of just it's just happening because it had to happen like Kamal Khan has to die somehow I guess so why not just crash a plane you know so yeah it, it just sort of lets you down it just sort of peters out yeah. but it, it, it keeps going and, and I really do think that with the bomb being diffused the tension of the film completely evaporates so that, like, that, that is the resolution of the film yeah. that feels like the big kind of set piece or the big kind of story portion no and it's not and that's the film like just that's keeps like the rolling. end of act two yeah and, is, and it just like why why is this continuing and this film is like two hours ten minutes long or so it's, it's oh yeah we're it's we're gonna be in this brief. range for a while uh we will so yeah yeah so buckle up <laughs> but uh well speaking of speaking of two hours and ten minutes let's uh let's run some more numbers shall we all right, let's do it. You got, uh, you got. I know you mentioned uh, kills are going to be hard to count uh, because of the opening airplane. They, hangar they are. I'm, I've got a. I, I feel like I'm going to try and be consistent with this, and I feel like I mean I didn't count. I didn't like try and estimate when Doctor No's base blew up, or and uh, you know you only live once when they blew up the base. You know we don't know yeah. how many people died in that. Bond has a lot of blood in his, in his hands, uh, so I'm just counting distinct kills. So I got 17 people that Bond killed here. Now there's All a right. few in the pre-credits that he karate chops or he a couple of guys fall off a motorcycle while he's flying his plane i don't think those they're they're fine they're fine movie logic dictates they'll be right. safe but he he kills 70 people by shooting or throwing them in, into a tank with an octopus an octopus he owns an octopus we didn't even mention it right it's not important yeah. in the slightest also and just to mention it magda has a, an octopus tattoo because she's part of octopus's octopus cult um, and that tattoo, and maybe this is HD, I think maybe it's not the most favorable. It is so clearly one of those like transfers that like you buy oh, yeah. in like little, that you like put a quarter in like a vending machine on your summer vacation. And yeah, you, the, the edges yeah, are you know, peeling get a little, off. Get a little wet and you stick it on and like it is so clearly one of those. It's the cheapest, goofiest looking thing. But anyway, he, yeah, he Bond shoots and stabs and hits a couple of people. And I came out with about 17 um, which and I suppose the only notable thing of that is that that means it, with this film Roger Moore has exceeded Sean Connery's kill count. I All have right. fully Sean Connery thus far with seventy kills, and with this Roger Moore leaps ahead to eighty-one kills. Mm. So our love, our lovable granddad uh, Roger Moore has now killed eighty-one. He's people. a killer. He is. He's vicious. Of course, we will mention that. Of course, uh, Sean Connery gets to up his numbers this year as well because never say never again came out the same year and we'll we'll tackle that in due course so a rare a rare occasion that a bond comes back um so that brings us to a total kill count of about 157 people within the uh aeon franchise which is uh, one good you know a good air disaster worth of people i suppose um 
And in terms of, well, let's, let's just talk, uh, in terms of sex, uh, we, we've been tracking age difference between Bond and, and the ladies' bedding just to see how creepy it gets. And mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, it gets quite creepy, uh, particularly when your leading man is 56. Uh, none of the women, I will let you know, are 56 years old. That doesn't happen. Uh, we're not going to beat our record, which was uh, set in, well, we have two separate records running. From Russia with Love, James Bond sleeps with four women. He yeah. only sleeps with two. Roger Moore is very chaste. You know, quality over quantity, perhaps. Um, so, Roger Moore only sleeps with two. And, uh, let's see, age difference record. We don't we don't set a record here. The, the age difference record is 30 years between Roger Moore and Carol Bouquet and Free Your Eyes Only, just the previous film. And this one, we only have Magda, uh, Christina Wayborn. There's about 23 years of a difference between them, right. give or take which is an entire adult human being. And uh, Octopussy Maud Adams is uh, 18 years younger than Roger Moore, which is almost... I mean, if a 56-year-old and a 38-year-old were, like, in a relationship, like, no one could say that was, you know, anyone was taking advantage of anyone. So that's, you know, yeah. uh, that's not so bad. All I'll right. give him that. But anyway, a little creepy. But uh, <laughs> less less <laughs> less creepy, I suppose, is hopefully is our box office numbers. How, how did this one do? Well, let's see. Uh, this film had a budget of uh, $27.5 million. is about um, half a million less than uh, the previous film, For Your Eyes Only. Uh, that's roughly worth $70 million today. Uh, it earned a total of $68 million in the U.S., uh, which is equivalent to $175 million in 2019's uh, uh, adjusted for inflation gross. And uh, overall, $187 million worldwide, which is equivalent to $480 million today. Um, so, oh, yeah, this is a big moneymaker. Uh, I believe unadjusted for inflation. This is uh, the one, like number 10 in the top 10 grossing Bond films of all time. Um, wow. e- easy to see why I think the location sells it for a lot of this film so uh, and there are a few you know nice shots like there's a great shot at the Taj Mahal and so if anything else it makes a very good traveler's guide to India um, definitely if, if not necessarily reverent of its people um, no 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 <laughs> And, you will learn yeah. nothing about India from this film, just to point that out. Yeah. Uh, also, this film was nominated for zero Oscars. Uh, so, sorry, Octopussy, nobody read your name on a ballot that year. Um, that is so disappointing. Yeah. And a uh, couple uh, bits of trivia I wanted to add. Um, so, we mentioned the book. Uh, so, Fleming had 14 total novels uh, when he was a writer. Uh, the last novel was called Octopussy and the Living Daylights. Uh, which is a book comprised of, I believe, six uh, short stories, um, and he pulled elements, or the elements were pulled from Octopussy. But uh, one of the short stories is called "Property of a Lady," which is what the name of the Fabergé egg was in the uh, Sotheby auction house. Um, ah, so, see, yeah. clever references being snuck in. Exactly. Yeah. So there's little Easter eggs for the fans. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's Octopussy. Um, it's yeah, I, a, I suppose what's interesting to discuss, just in terms of the, and I will we'll cover this uh, coming, is is that what's interesting? This did really well at the box office in the only year ever where it had actual direct competition from another James Bond film. That's right, uh, yeah. This was uh, Battle of the Bonds, um, which which will be our next episode. So, yeah, this was... uh, 
a rival production company got a hold of uh, Sean Connery and the rights to Thunderball and uh, yeah it was Bond versus Bond as they say well, a and, lot uh, of bad blood honestly I feel like there yeah. that they got Sean Connery in. and of course this this ends with and because we're we're going in chronological order theoretically with the Aeon franchise the official Bond franchise it would tell us that as the end credits here say we would be going on to uh, from a view to a kill that's with James Bond returning and of course he never right. appeared in a film called that because they trimmed it down to just a view to a kill yeah. which the more I think about it it doesn't make any sense as oh, a term just wait till uh, they say it in the movie it'll I know, make I know. no sense at all <laughs> it's just one of those things where you have to say the title and everyone's like oh I know that that's the title of the movie but in any case we will not be going directly onto that because as you said we have we have never say never again mm-hmm. we have an unofficial uh, James Bond upstart com- competition piece. Yeah, uh, and we will return for Never Say Never Again. Yeah, that will be that will be the next step. Well, uh, yeah. Before we go, uh, Jack, where can the good people on the internet find you? You can find me on Twitter at Real Jack Eason. Yeah, uh, and yeah, there's a lot of garbage that I post there. Yeah, Jack's a very active Twitter follower. Uh, he gets he engages in a lot of uh, good topics of discussion, and I think he always has an interesting point of view. So, uh, if anything, please give him a follow. It's well worth it. Shout at me, complain at me, and Jake. Oh, where, yeah. where can people where can people complain at you? You can uh, find me at Jake Tropila. Uh, I'm at Jake Tropila and all the things. But uh, Twitter is uh, where I usually promote this. Um, uh, also, you can follow our main channel at Optimism Vaccine. Uh, if you have a general question for us or any suggestions for the podcast, uh, hit us up. You can tweet at Optimism Vaccine, or you can write us at Optimism Vaccine at gmail.com. Uh, or you can even leave a comment on the website at optimismvaccine.com. We can uh, take your news there. Um, but yeah, after I think, you rate uh, us on iTunes, obviously, you, right? Of course. How could I forget? Go to iTunes, and what you're going to want to do is uh, drag the stars all the way to the right until you hit five, uh, and then leave a nice comment, even if it uh, says something like uh, "Jack rules, Jake drools." We'll take anything as long as you give us five stars. That's your uh, license to uh, critique, I guess you could say. Um, well, uh, my wife just gave me a look like I should wrap this up after I made that joke. So uh, I guess uh, without further ado, uh, I've been Jake Tropila. And I've been Jack Eason. And uh, for your ears only, we'll return with Never Say Never Again. Never say never again.